The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 862 for Monday, March 22nd, 2021. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your tips, your questions, your cool stuff found. We attempt to answer your questions, to share your tips, to share your cool stuff found. The goal is that each and every one of us, me, him, you, we all learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include a new sponsor, Startmail. Dot com slash MGG. Very cool stuff. Uh, Babble.com at promo code MGG. Ladderlife.com slash MGG. Headspace.com slash MGG. And checkout.com slash MGG. We will talk through each of those a little bit later in the episode. For now, as usual, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How are things in Fairfield, Connecticut, Mr. Braun? Well, spring has sprung, it apparently. Is. Yeah, that's true. Yes, we have. I completed my Fairfield Beach tour yesterday. Oh, nice. Very good. That's good. Cool. All right. Let's. Yeah. Um, yeah you, oh. Let's. Uh, no, let's. Yeah, quick uh, tips. Let's do it. All right. I think, I think you're up first. Let's, yep. All right. So Todd writes in with uh, something I didn't know existed, but uh, now we do. Uh, so Todd says, you've been talking on and off about Apple ID somehow remaining on older devices, even though you figured you deactivated them. If you really want to know what data Apple has about your devices, you can pull a lot of data directly from Apple. That's nice of them. At privacy.apple.com. This is probably just a good thing to do anyways. You really have to prove you are who you say you are. And when I initially did this, it took a few days. But once this packet of data is prepared, you'll receive a zip file containing several CSV, comma, separated values. Uh, contained in those CSV files will be the whole a whole assortment of data that could assist in tracking down old devices. At the very least, it's good to know what Apple has on you. Yeah. So... Huh. So I got that rolling. I haven't gotten my data yet. But, okay. Um, but that's nice of them, you know, and you can, uh, if you go to that site, you can say, show me my data, um, you know, correct it, uh, you know, things that are wrong. I guess you can request that. So, uh, but yeah, I, I never knew that existed. So thank you, Todd. That's great. Huh? Yeah. I didn't, I had no idea. It makes sense. I mean, a GDPR and the CCPA and all that stuff require you to be able to do that at different levels. So yeah, good. Uh, Rob shares a quick tip. Uh, he says, um, I found myself having one of those moments yelling at the car stereo, listening to the latest episode. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Bob was having an issue with the audio from his Apple TV being played via his new home pod, uh, mini when placed in the same room. I think I know the fix. In the latest TV OS, Apple added a control center, just like iOS, but to your Apple TV. Press and hold the TV button on the remote, and this will appear. From here, you can select a destination for audio via the AirPlay symbol. One of these options should say TV speakers. Once selected, Bob should be able to uh, put the HomePod in the same room, but still have TV audio coming through his home 
theater setup. That's a great one, Rob. I had no idea that that control center was there, but sure enough, it is. That's pretty good. Huh. Yeah, I think I saw, yeah, I saw something on my Apple TV at one point where it's like, oh, by the way, there's, there's something new here. And I, yeah, I yeah. was like, okay, that's nice. That's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. It's amazing how like it, it's just fascinating to see how the convergence and, you know, features that, that start on one platform sort of, you know, make some of them make it over. I, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting mm -hmm. to see some of them work better than others, obviously. All right. Uh, Christopher, <laughs> Christopher says, uh, I humbly wish to provide my input in the form of a quick tip. Uh, beware the pop-up blocker during this very stressful season of tax preparation. For I don't know how many years I've had Safari set to block those insidious and diabolical pop-ups from websites. In fact, I've had them blocked for so long I couldn't remember where to turn that setting on or off temporarily when necessary. Wasn't it Command-K for a while? Anyway, he says, many of us are forced now to interact with government websites that were properly, probably, not necessarily properly, probably designed in the 90s. And this caused me a great deal of frustration when I was trying to retrieve a form I needed from one of these sites. Nothing I seemed to do would take me to the proper place to get the form until I guessed it must be something to do with the design of the website. So I put on my tinfoil hat from the 90s and tried to remember how one used to download forms on the web when slap bracelets were a thing. And the answer came to me. Maybe the sensory memory of putting one of those slap bracelets on was the thing that did it. And he says it did in a pop up window. But Safari running in Big Sur didn't give me any indication that it was blocking a pop up uh, from this steam powered state government designed and operated website. <laughs> I made a quick trip to preferences, websites, pop-up windows, and chose to allow pop-up windows from only that website and abracadabra. My elusive form appeared as if out of nowhere to be downloaded from or to my Mac. So remember, my fellow Mac geeks, when surfing the wild wastelands of the World Wide Web, and especially when dealing with three-letter government entities, remember the Mac Geek Gab motto? Non adepto deprensis, or as he says, according to Google Translate, don't get caught. Thanks for uh, sharing that, Christopher. <laughs> Very eloquently written. He's uh, you, Christopher. You are our new official uh, staff writer here because you've you've put together things that uh, that are fun to read. So there you go. <laughs> that is definitely something I want. I want. Uh, where's the reverb again? Non adepto deprensis. I want that on uh, on like a wand. I mean, that sounds like a spell, John. We gotta we mm -hmm. gotta we gotta lean in on this. I like it. I don't know. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I think our state tax website does something silly with pop ups as well. I thought something appeared in the address bar if it was blocking a pop up. I oh, it's thought, been a while since. Yeah, I thought so too. I, I it would appear. You're right in the address bar. <clears throat> it's not obvious, so it's possible Christopher had it and missed it. But right there in the address mm. bar is the um, should be. <clears throat> excuse me, that pop up thing. So yeah, um, it, it should be there. But the other thing you can do is in that address bar if you right click on the address bar. Mm. 
you can go to settings for this website and that's where you can set right. all kinds of things, whether it can autoplay media, a default page zoom just for that site. So if there's some new site you visit where you need, you know, the, the font bigger or smaller, uh, you can, you know, all of that stuff, camera, microphone. So that's, that's not a bad, uh, that's not a bad place to go. So, all right. Uh, thank you for that, Christopher. That was a, a fun one for sure. And I, I yeah. want those magic wands, John. We got to get, we got to figure that out. So. All right. Speaking of taxes, I do believe they've extended the deadline, right? Yes, the feds about that. The feds extended the the filing deadline from April fifteenth to March seventeenth. Many states have chosen to extend their deadlines in concert with that, but check with your state to make sure. I know for a fact that California does because I looked it up. I don't know about any other states, but that's only because I didn't look them up. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't realize we were talking about it on the show, but uh, but it does not change your deadline for quarterly filings. So, and now I've told you more than I know. To quote the great mm. John Martellaro. So, all right. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't do that. I take the penalty. Really? Huh. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just. I just write one check a year. Interesting. Yeah, they they prefer. And then they send me a bill for the. Uh, yeah. And then they send me a bill for the interest. Yeah, but all you have to do is right. file a quarterly that equals mm -hmm. one quarter of your previous year's tax burden, and then you you um, avoid the penalties. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, you want to take us to David? Uh, we got a short one here from David. So David says, "I email myself a lot." Okay. Um. <laughs> He might have a reason for this. That's, that's entertaining. <laughs> um, reminders, articles to read, quick thoughts for later. My email is my universal catch-all, but emailing myself, particularly when driving, is difficult because my name is David, so I have to pick through to select my email. Not anymore. I edited my contact card, and now my company is PP, right next to my right thumb as I use the phone. No more picking through emails. It takes half the effort, so now I can do it twice as much. Um, okay. Uh, all I can say is that you probably shouldn't be fiddling with your phone when you're driving, but um, you know, minimizing the amount of time that you're distracted is uh, good, and I'm sure you only do this when you're stopped. So, I, I, Yeah, I would recommend... Uh figuring out a Siri shortcut for this or creating a Siri shortcut mm -hmm. for this, right? You know, like you could say mm -hmm. Siri email me and it could create that email for you like without mm -hmm. any of this. Right. And then if you still really felt the need to like tap on the keyboard, you could do that at that point. But at least the email is already like you've launched mail. It's opened up a new message. It's already addressed to you. And now all you got to do is type or even dictate into the email. So mm -hmm. you could like, there's a, there's a series shortcut here to save you from being dangerous and probably breaking the law. I mean, I don't know where David lives, but you know, there's, they, mm -hmm. they are, um, they are pretty strict about those things, at least in my parts. So, yeah. All right. And, and, you know, obviously, um, non adepto deprensis, sorry, you have to do it mm -hmm. with the reverb. Non adepto deprensis. Uh, applies, you know, don't do no harm, but don't get caught and don't get caught. Perhaps is, is it anyway. All right. Uh, Russell 
more quick tips. Boy, we got a lot of them today. This is excellent. Okay, Russell brings us two quick tips. The first is WFSCTL. He says, as a user of DevonThink, I want a web dev server to act as a data store to sync various computers, iPads, and iPhone. With the demise of my elderly secondhand Dell server in the cellar, uh, the uh, oh, uh, server options for macOS are also dead and buried. And I was a bit anxious about setting up web dev on the headless Mac mini 2018, but it was ridiculously easy. I just installed Apache, but there are, and there are plenty of guides. He says, I used a terminal command WFSCTL to set up and start and stop web dev shares. Uh, man, WFSCTL, we'll put all this in the show notes, of course, uh, has useful information. The only issue I had was that I needed to actually log in as root to do the setup of the web dev shares and not use sudo from a non-root account. Huh, pretty cool. All right. And then the second, thank you for that. The second quick tip from Russell, he says, this comes from set app support, who not only solved a difficult problem quickly, but went beyond the original remit to give me some good advice on a sideline issue I mentioned. That is trying to have a home folder on an external drive. He says, I have a four bay SSD raid on a Thunderbolt three connection as my main storage for the iMac fast. And of course, fault protected uh, instructions for the home folder on an external drive from setup copied below, but essentially select the drive uh, do the ignore ownership uh, or make sure that ignore ownership on the volume is disabled. So that's in the get info of the drive from the finder. Cause you want ownership and permissions specifically on the drive to be enabled. So the permissions need to be there. Once you've got that going, select the drive containing your hold home folder. Uh, oh, yo, yeah. You walk through the instructions, restart your Mac, and then you can, you can put your home folder on that external drive. But that's, I think that's one thing that's missing from Apple's instructions. John is making sure that ignore ownership is disabled when you're moving to uh, a new one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, pretty good. Geeky stuff, Russell, but I like it. You know, we're, we're, we're geeks here. As I, as I uh, like to say, you know, you don't have to be a geek to listen, but if you listen long enough, you'll become one. So that's the idea. Ah, <sighs> all right. One last quick tip here, John. Right. I think so. Sure. Okay. Steve brings us, uh, he says, I've been a big user and fan of iOS reminders for many years for tons and tons of stuff, including multiple daily repeating reminders over the past couple of years. It has become nearly unusable to me. It was impossibly slow and took forever to display the list of tasks. I started hating and dreading having to add items so much so that I switched to another app for the last two months, tick tick, which has worked quite well. I enjoyed using it except for one thing that has a yearly or annual subscription fee. I think yearly and annual would be the same thing. Maybe you meant monthly or annual subscription fee. Anyway, uh, recently I thought maybe the iOS reminders problem could be solved by deleting everything and starting over a nuke and pave of sorts. With a quick Google search, I found a quick and simple way to delete all reminders and more importantly, completed reminders in one fell swoop. I built a shortcut to do this and now my reminders app is usable and responsive. Again, it turns out that 13,000 completed reminders was not a good thing and was bogging down the app to an unusable degree. It seems that completed does not mean deleted and reminders will hang on to them forever. I've since set up a personal automation that will run that shortcut on the first of every month to clean up my completed reminders tasks. 
I expect this will keep things running smoothly into the future. And he sent us a link to the how to geek article on this. Uh, and so thank you for that. But yeah, it's, um, it's interesting doing this on the phone because it's a, it, you, know, you can do it as a shortcut, but it just, it just iterates through your reminders and, and, and then it will, t- it will ask you, uh, at least the way they have their shortcut built, you know, uh, do you want to remove 46 reminders or whatever fits the criteria that you've set? This is a permanent action. Are you sure you want to remove them? And then you can hit remove or cancel. That's a great one. Yeah. That, that link goes in the show notes full show. That's good. Tick tick as well. I want to check that out. So awesome. All right. Fun stuff, Mr. Braun, fun stuff. Hey, um, we have some questions to get through. We have, we have all kinds of stuff to get through, including uh, our first sponsors here, which I would love to tell everybody about if uh, if that's good by you, Mr. Braun. Please do. All right. You know, free email services like Gmail and Yahoo aren't really free. You pay with your information and your privacy, right? Because those companies have access to every email you send and receive They can sell your data to the highest bidder or use your data to sell you as the product to the highest bidder. And especially now, you know, we're passing back and forth a lot of things in email, including medical records and things like that. They can build a real profile about us and then target us or, again, use us as the product. And that's not so good. And this is why StartMail exists, because StartMail keeps email private period, right? Encryption is at their core. That's where things start with them. Every email with StartMail is encrypted, even if the recipient doesn't use encryption. And that means big tech can't come in and read or scan or analyze or sell my personal information ever, right? Not even Big Brother can snoop around because StartMail also prevents governments and other agencies from spying on you. And also what's cool about StartMail, deleted means deleted forever. When you delete an email, that's it. It's gone. They have a super easy to read privacy policy because, you know, they are storing your data, albeit encrypted, right? And with StartMail, you get unlimited anonymous aliases. And this feature is pretty cool because it protects your main email address from spam and phishing attacks. Very cool. We've been messing around with StartMail for about the last month here. And like the web interface is great. It works great over IMAP. They really know what they're doing. These folks totally get email. And, you know, we don't like to trust big tech. And we certainly don't recommend that you trust them either. Start securing your email privacy with StartMail now. Sign up today and you'll get 50% off your first year. Go to startmail.com slash MGG. That's startmail with a T, S-T-A-R-T mail.com slash MGG for 50% off your first year. Startmail.com slash MGG. Start protecting your email and our thanks to StartMail for sponsoring this episode. No te dejes atrapar. Or in case you don't speak Spanish, I think you can figure out what it means. It's what we like to say at the end of every episode here. Don't get caught, folks. And you can learn this and all kinds of other things from Babbel. Babbel makes the process of learning a new language super, super easy. I've I've been using it on my phone here, but you can use it on your, your desktop or you know however you want to do it. 
they have these little 15 minute lessons and that makes it perfect to learn a new language on the go. Unlike those classes that we took in high school, Babbel designs their courses with practical real world conversations in mind. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel's lessons were actually created by over a hundred language experts and their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including, yes, Spanish and French, Italian, German, lots of others, too. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology really helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. That's one of the cool things about it. So right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. Tracy, trace, es seis, right? That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code MGG. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MGG for those extra three months for free. Our thanks to Babbel, Language for Life, for sponsoring this episode. Speaking of life, our next sponsor, Ladder, helps make sure that you protect the quality of life of your loved ones if something were to happen to you. If we've learned anything over this past year, it's that life is fragile, right? I mean, things are way different right now than they were a year ago. That's for darn sure. And that's why people get life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not just pay a little bit each month to protect the ones you love? And if you've been asking yourself this question, choose Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. You need just a few minutes and your phone or your laptop to apply. Ladder's got these smart algorithms and they work in real time. So you'll find out instantly if you're approved. There's no hidden fees. You can cancel at any time. And since life insurance costs more as we age, well, now's the best time to cross it off your list. Unless you've got a time machine, in which case, let's talk. But otherwise, today's the day. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com slash MGG. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash MGG. Ladderlife.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Ladder for sponsoring this episode. All right, Dave. Here we go. Um, oh, wait. Hold on. No, here we go. Okay, Dan. Dan has a head scratcher, and uh, okay. we'll, we'll see if we can help with that. We will scratch accordingly. We will scratch publicly, yeah. so to speak. Uh, don't do that. Okay. All right. So he says, uh, hi, guys. Since Xfinity is going to start charging for exceeding data caps, I would like to help my friend track data usage per device. I know that there are programs he can install on each computer, iPhone, iPad to monitor, but that is not what I'm after. Uh, he just got a Roku, so we want that included. Plus, he shares his Wi-Fi with a neighbor. Uh, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe on a guest network. Uh, I know some routers offer ways to monitor per device, but I just helped him buy a Motorola cable modem gateway slash router about six months ago, which does not. Is there any way to accomplish this, uh, what we want, without new hardware? Uh, I guess if we need to, we could buy another Wi-Fi router that does support this and put the gateway in bridge mode. Any suggestions? He doesn't care about any fancy features aside from the data monitoring, and I don't think high Wi-Fi speeds are even that important to him. So the cheapest option with the data monitoring feature would be good. Um, the only thing off the top of my head, Dave, um, Eero yeah. uh, put a feature that does this. Um, in in uh, an update quite a while ago, yep. uh, from what I recall, I just 
was running the Eero app one day and I'm like, oh, look at that. Um, and Eero will keep track, though I think it, I think you have to uh, get one of their uh, enhanced plans here. It'll it'll show you some rudimentary uh, usage data per device, but it does show it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I send them a screenshot of it from uh, Eero. Uh, and then I was looking around, and I, I I think you've you've done something in this space, Dave, but um. Uh, I was trying to find, so, so there's something called SNMP, simple network management protocol that a lot of network devices support. Uh, not all of them do. Um, and one thing that, uh, certain devices will do is keep track of the amount of data, though not per device necessarily, uh, but they'll keep track of how much data has come in and gone out. Uh, I th There was something I had a while ago. I think it was called SNMP Monitor or something like yep. that. And I looked for it and it wasn't out there anymore. Um, but I think you've done something in this realm as well, my friend. Yeah, I, SNMP is probably not the right answer. I mean, you need hardware that supports it. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, that's probably going to be a not, you're not going to have it supported in everything that you want it. And also setting it up is just a huge bear to, to, to really get that going. You'd need to run something like, it's been a long time. I'm sure there's something better, but like MRTG, the multi-router traffic grapher or whatever. Um, okay. That that's the one I remember you, you had yeah, used at one point. And it's fine, but it, again, it's, you know, it was an afternoon's worth of like, Hey, cool. Let's set this up. So I, you know, I, I do this router. Your router is going to be the best place for this because it's seeing everything. Uh, but I think things like, I know our thing boxes track this type of stuff too, John. So that would be, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how easily they surface it. I, and honestly, it's because I haven't looked. I don't know if you looked at yours to to see what it reports for that. But um, because my router supports it, right, that the Synology routers will give you this level of data. Netgear's routers will also give many of Netgear's routers will also give you this level of data. I realize we're not answering your question in the way you desired because you don't want to spend any money. You don't want to get new hardware. But. I, I like that is definitely going to be the the simplest path forward. Sure, you could, I mean, you could run PF. So you could run PF Sense, which is a software based router that you put on a dedicated machine that then becomes your router. And while I've never run PF Sense, it would shock me if there wasn't some version of this functionality there. And PF Sense, I believe, is available for free. So that would be a way to go. But even just describing that to me makes it obvious that that's probably not the best way to go for your friend that you're helping. You know, this is you want something that stays, you know, solid. So uh, I, a router and there's lots of them. I, I would look at honestly, I would probably just lean toward the Synology one because it gives you all of this functionality. Uh, but there's others, you know, Alex in the chat room mentioned uh, Ubiquity. Uh, you know, their Unify line will do this. That's going to be an even more expensive way to go, but certainly uh, doable. And um, Dan says, so maybe there is this answer. So geek challenge time uh, that there's an app called Peak Hour, P-E-A-K 
H-O-U-R. I believe we've mentioned this. This sounds familiar now that you mentioned it, Dan. But um, but he says, I've used peak hour to monitor via SNMP. So maybe, maybe that's the place to start. Uh, it's not going to hurt. Go check it out. Uh, I think you can test drive it for 10 days for free. So that would be the way to go. And then uh, figure out if that's going to give you what you want. And if, and if not, well, now you know what the, the non-hardware version of this is. And and you can sort of make a choice from there. So thank you for that, Dan. That's excellent. Thanks, Alex, as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, some other suggestions. So one, when I was searching for solutions here, um, activity monitor. <laughs> we'll do it at least on a on a Mac. On we'll a show you the device, amount of yeah. data received and sent. So you could take a snapshot of that and then... Mm-hmm look at it later and see how much it did. I, I, I'm not, uh, I don't know what resets the counters here. I, I think mean, it's like restarting mine here and it says, I think it okay. reboot, resets it. Yeah. Yeah. But mine here, you know, when I look at it, uh, activity monitor and click on the network tab, there's data received and data sent. So mm. that's nice. So, so the computer is monitoring that. Yes. Um, I yeah. know that again, it's, it's kind of a pain. And it doesn't help with this Roku. Right, right, right. So, yeah. Yeah, it, you're going you're gonna to be better off with your router. Your router has the right vantage point for this is really what it comes down to. It's seeing your traffic in that way. Again, I, I think we, we should look into this on the Fingbox, John. Did you, did you happen to look at it on the Fingbox to see if it was, if it like reports this stuff? Um, um, well, my... Fing box is is not finging. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yours, yours has a an Ethernet problem. So, I'm looking quickly here. As far as I can tell, yeah. So I was getting these notifications on my um on my phone saying it's up, it's down, it's up, it's right. down, and and when I ran the app, it would it, it said I I can't talk to your Fing box. So I looked at it, um, and uh, most Ethernet ports have two lights. One shows activity and one shows link status. And the lights on this, one of them isn't on anymore. Mm. So that would indicate to me that the Ethernet port's bad. And actually, someone on Twitter confirmed this, saying, yeah, I had the same problem. And, you know, they they took care of it. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm looking here, at least in the web interface for my Fingbox, and I, I mean, it gives me a lot of data, mostly presence data um, and history mm. about when a device is here or not here, but I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing traffic data, and so uh, maybe, maybe the Fingbox isn't the, isn't the thing to do that. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, great. Can I see traffic data with the iOS app? No. I suppose not. I don't think that's going to be the magic here. Let's see. Network. I mean, I can see overall usage, but I'm not getting per device usage. So, yeah, that's not going to do it. There's nothing device. I mean, there's the devices menu, but it doesn't give me traffic data. I can stop a device. That doesn't help. It is a cool little thing, this Fingbox, but... um, but that's doesn't seem to be one of the things it does. And it may not be able to, I'm not sure. Like I'm, I'm trying to think of how they could do that. 
But anyway, we'll put a link in the show notes, but I don't think that's your answer. I think um, peak hour is probably the place that I would start uh, just to see what the non hardware solution looks like. And then, and then you can go from there. So, all right. Yeah. Or get another IS, get another ISP. Well, that's, you know, that's what, um, there's a lot of fiber rolling out. I, I had the opportunity to speak to some of the folks from, uh, from consolidated, which is the company that, uh, is rolling out fiber in my area. In fact, I just so happened to be outside, like walking across from the driveway to the house when uh, when I saw their their contractors' trucks roll by, they had this huge spool, John, on one truck that they were just unrolling, and then another truck rolling down with a bucket on it, and that person was mm-hmm. like stringing it up to the poles as they went by. So I got to see the fiber go, but um, but you know they they I had the exact same thing happen this week. Really. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed there was a, a bunch of commotion outside of my place. And, you yeah. know, I saw the the cops and thought that I got caught. But no, they were directing traffic because there was a truck stringing fiber right past my house. And it had the, um, so the company is called Go NetSpeed. Okay. Um, and their logo was on the side of the trucks that were running the fiber. So. Yeah, this was Waveguide running the fiber here. They're the contractor that that Consolidated uh, is using, at least you know in this area. Mm. But yeah, but um, it so they um, you know, they were planning on expanding, uh, you know, Consolidated here. I'm sure whatever company it is, you know, down there that's doing it. Uh, and then they, you know, the the pandemic sort of highlighted this need and and increased demand for more reliable faster upstream that sort of thing and so um so you know that that even accelerated things further along so i think i think that's part of why a lot of us are starting to see these secondary you know options rolling out in our our various areas so i'm looking forward to it i i did find out that at least in their initial rollout in this area you will not be able to just plug your network in via ethernet it's gonna that you have to use their router because of authentication which is kind of a bummer for many of us because their router i believe is going to be wi-fi 5 out of the gate they're using uh, plume super pods which are th- like the 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 best mesh for roaming hands down right like so th- th- at least it's a decent mesh but it is a wi-fi 5 mesh so I'm a little bummed about that, but they are working on it. They very much want to give people the ability to just use their networks. Obviously you can DMZ it and, and use your own stuff. There's, you know, obviously that work around, but, but there's no bridge mode as I understand it, but I could be wrong. All right. Uh, Joe has some Thunderbolt woes. We will keep you posted on the fiber stuff uh, as things progress. Cause it is interesting. And it sounds like both John and I will have the opportunity to have some different experiences which is even better all right uh joe asks he says i would like to have a recommendation from you guys regarding a macbook pro setup problem specifically regarding either a thunderbolt or usb dock my problem is i do not seem to have enough available thunderbolt ports to make everything work the way that i would like joe welcome to the club uh, mm-hmm. my setup details, uh, he, he listed them below, but he says, basically I use, uh, two USB mini plug-in hubs that each have a Thunderbolt three and HDMI, uh, plus other ports. I have to use one Thunderbolt three port 
to power the MacBook Pro, right? You got to have that upstream host port. Uh, and then he says, I use the other Thunderbolt 3 port to connect to my Thunderbolt 3 base Drobo. That aspect works fine. I had to change my setup recently when I added the Drobo, where previously I had used that Thunderbolt 3 port via an adapter to go to the Max, the IMAX mini display port for target display mode functionality. Now I no longer have an available Thunderbolt 3 port to use, and the solution I have to, uh, have so far is to use one of the available HDMI ports via an adapter to go to the Max, um, the IMAX display port. This works, but every night the IMAX seems to release the target display mode function, and so every morning I have to unplug and replug the connector to get everything operational again. So... What are my options? I'm looking for the easiest and least expensive way to get a solution. Uh, he says, I simply want to get a something that provides maybe three or four Thunderbolt 3 ports in addition to USB-A, USB-C. He says, I know from a recent show that OWC came out with a new hub that does exactly this. But what I saw was around 300 bucks, which seems overkill for my needs. But perhaps that's what I need. So what do you think? And yeah, you are you are right. Um up until Big Sur, and so that's I, I like this is a very important factor. If your Mac, for whatever reason, can't run Big Sur or you don't want to because of some software or whatever, then you cannot take advantage of what we're about to tell you here. But if your Mac can run Big Sur and it has Thunderbolt 3 on it or even Thunderbolt 2, I think, if you could do the adapter switch, Maru, as long as you're running Big Sur, you can take advantage of what is commonly referred to as Thunderbolt hubbing. And you're right. OWC has a few hubbing options. Uh, the first one is their OWC Thunderbolt dock. Uh, that they're just that's just what they're calling it. It uh, it's 250 bucks. So you're right that it's got you know it's not super inexpensive, but for what it does, it seems like a fair price to me. Uh, so it has four Thunderbolt three ports: one for the you know the upstream uh, device, and then three for, for the host, you know, three for the downstream devices. And then it's got, uh, uh, three, I think USB a ports. It's got HDMI. It's got headphone out. It's got SD, et cetera, et cetera. And it'll provide, if you want, you know, up to 90 Watts of charging power for actually it's got four USB a ports. And I believe, uh, three of them are 10 gig and one is a USB two port. So it's got a lot for you, including, three, you know, four, if you count the, the host port, four Thunderbolt three ports. So essentially adding two to your mix, which is freaking amazing. If you don't need all the extra stuff and only want, you know, if you already have docs and you just need the hub, then OWC has their Thunderbolt hub, which has one USB-A port and four Thunderbolt ports. So that could be, you know, another option for you. And that's only 150 bucks or 149. So that would be the way to go. There are other companies coming out with uh, these Thunderbolt hubs, as you would imagine. Uh, OWCs are the only ones that have shipped to me. So I don't know if the others are actually available yet, but but I know that that they're obviously being worked on for all the obvious reasons. But yeah, it's an exciting thing that Big Sur unlocks for all of us. And um and, you know, so you've got some options. I don't know where that falls in your pricing range, but at least one of them is half of what you were seeing elsewhere. So maybe that's the maybe that's the way to go. I don't know. What do you think, John? 
ODBC. ODBC. I um I recently added uh, upgraded this computer here to Big Sur, John. So uh, assuming this show makes it out, I will consider that a success. And the one thing that I've been really tempted to do, but I've honored the troubleshooting process, is I have uh, one of actually one of each of those OWC uh, Thunderbolt hubbing things. And I really want to plug that in and expand the way I'm doing things here. Mm. But I honored the troubleshooting process. I, d- I changed one thing at a time. So I changed no hardware. I just did the upgrade to Big Sur. And I've been been sitting on my hands waiting until we finish the show this week. And then I will go ahead and, and put the hub in place. So there you go. I don't know. But so far, so good. <laughs> Seems all right. You want to take us to Andrew? So I'm, I may upgrade this machine then. Okay. At some point during the week. Okay. Right? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. What's I would, the worst that could happen? Well, take a clone of your prior OS and that way if yes if the worst happens you can just roll back yeah so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah you want to take us to Andrew all right yes I'll take us to Andrew um Andrew says alas I forgot that the network utility would be deprecated with the big sir do you have any suggestions for utility paid or free that does all the same things that the network utility was able to do? I know there used to be a something from sustainable softworks, but it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be supported anymore. And I don't know if the developer is legit anymore. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> the way to solve this problem is stupid, Dave. <laughs> okay. Um, here's how you solve this problem. Uh, if you have a machine that is running, not running Big Sur, um, copy the network utility from that one and copy it over to your Big Sur machine. It works just fine. <laughs> Interesting. Huh. And I verified this. So I, I uh, you know, so th- this machine is currently not running Big Sur. And so I took network utility, which is in applications utilities. I think it's buried in there. I think that's right. Yep. And I copied it to Dropbox. And then I went to my MacBook Pro running Big Sur and copied it over to the application folder and ran it. And it seems to run just fine. Huh. Okay. I I would... I mean, it's an older... It's funny because network utility on... My pre-Big Sur machine, network utility version 1.9.2, copyright 2000 through 2017. So it looks, well, I mean, network utility is basically just a, a GUI in front of things that you can run from the terminal. Right. But, um, you know, you may you may want that. So, so hopefully you have a pre-Big Sur machine around. So that's how you solve that one. All right. Uh, I am trying IP net monitor X and hopefully I don't, uh, completely crater my, my, my computer here, but it looks like IP net monitor 10 or IP net monitor X from sustainable softworks, which yes, is a very trustworthy company. Um, is it says it's only confirmed to you to work up through Catalina, but it does appear to be working just fine here on uh on big sur and has most if not more than in fact it has all of the things that network utility would do plus um 
you know, pl plus extra stuff that, that you don't get with network utility. I'm assuming you can still hear me, John. And so I haven't messed up mm -hmm. my network. All right. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad Andrew remembered sustainable softworks. I had completely forgotten about them, but they, I mean, they used to make utilities. Like we were just talking about PF sense, running your own router on your computer. I was using a piece of software. Uh, I think it was IP net router or something uh, from, yeah, it was IP net router that would do my routing. I was using that on my Mac with my first cable modem, you know, in Austin to, to route so that other computers in my house could get online via my cable modem that was, you know, tied to my one computer. So yeah, yeah. They've been around for a long time. So anyway, yeah, that would work. Um, I worry about network utility. It was in, it was weird because it's, it, you know, I just, as I said, I just upgraded this machine to big Sur. It is not there. Like it was removed from the applications folder or applications utilities folder. But, um, in the early betas of Big Sur, it would launch, but it would come up and it would say it's deprecated. Um, and I, it's like, I'm not sure that Apple knows what that means because deprecated usually mm -hmm. means, well, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I always understand deprecated to mean we have planned for its obsolescence. And so you can use it, but know that it's going away at some point in the future. But this is beyond deprecated. This has been removed. So um, mm -hmm. so anyway, it's gone. So I would worry that the Catalina version, obviously it works for you on Big Sur. So like, there you go. Mm. But I, like, who knows what happens with the next version of Mac OS? I mean, in theory, like you said, this app is just a, a face for some terminal commands. So probably shouldn't be too much of a problem, but worth, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, worth thinking about. So sustainable softworks man that's a blast from the past cool all right uh let's see where are we here john you know um I, we have well we have uh actually a cool little synology thing we've got more troubleshooting of big sur and those sorts of things to talk through which i'm excited about uh and i also want to talk about our our next two sponsors if that uh if that works for you my friend that works. All right. So you've probably tried meditation before and it didn't work, right? Or maybe you felt like you were doing it wrong. If mental health is part of your self-care plan this year, Headspace is going to be a great part of that for you. I've been meditating on and off for years. It, it's, it's a practice and it's not one I'm always up to date with. But I will say that Headspace has made it super easy to keep up with that practice. And I've been a Headspace user far longer than they have been a sponsor, or even considered being a sponsor of this show. And it's because Headspace is my daily dose of mindfulness in the form of these guided meditations in an easy to use app. That's the beauty of Headspace. And it's one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. And what's cool is they've got meditations for all scenarios. If you only have a few minutes, they've got three minutes. Minute SOS meditations. If you've got like 15 minutes, that's great. If you want to do a meditation with your kids, if you've got kids, they've got that. They really make it super easy and and fun. It really, the, the way the app works, it's super engaging. 
you go, you got to check it out. So you deserve to feel better. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash MGG. That's headspace.com slash MGG. And you will get a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal they're offering right now. So go to headspace.com slash MGG today. And our thanks to Headspace for sponsoring this episode. You know, Tech shouldn't stifle innovation, and traditional payment systems are heavily layered, disconnected, and perceived as a cost center to the business, right? Modern businesses, we need flexible payment systems that can help us adapt to change, grow, and scale fast. And most importantly, we need payment systems that are smooth experiences for our customers and that's why our next sponsor is Checkout.com because they've got a great approach to looking at all of this stuff. In fact, they've put out this white paper that they pulled together, and it's no great. This isn't going to be a surprise to anybody. It, it says 52% of customers surveyed say they have been permanently put off shopping on a site because of the complexity of the payment process. And 34% say they abandon a site permanently because of declined payments. You don't want this to happen. You just, when a customer wants to give you money, you want to take it. And Checkout's payment platform is purpose-built with simplicity, scalability, and speed in mind. Ideal for merchants looking to seamlessly integrate better payment solutions globally. You've got to check this out. See if, no, no pun intended, right? See if Checkout works for your business and set up a free test account in minutes at checkout.com slash MGG. That's checkout.com slash MGG for that free test account. Checkout.com slash MGG. Go check it out. And our thanks to Checkout.com for sponsoring this episode. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Going to have more water. Um, what do we got here, Dave? Steve. Steve. Has, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a bit esoteric, but uh, maybe not. Um, so Steve, Steve says... Easy for you to say. I had a discussion with some friends about letting Samba version one, SMB version one. I think that's system message block or something. Yeah. But it's a network protocol, uh, but it's an old one and not very secure. Uh, on our NAS, due to security risks, I have this enabled only because I have a Sonos Play 1 that requires SMB version one to work. Other than that, SMB version 2 or version 3 should work fine for my needs. So I searched Google and found this thread that was proposing a workaround using Docker on a Synology NAS. Uh, okay. But within, uh, someone proposed to use Plex as a service in the Sonos app. Then I realized that Plex might work. Plex, the, Plex doesn't require SMB1 and serves as a media server for music. Importantly, you can set up Plex as a service on the Sonos app. You don't need Plex Pass for this to work, so it's free. One drawback is you need to open a port on your router and enable Plex remote access for this to work. I think this is an acceptable security risk. Um, uh, and what else we got here? Plex app supports secure connections with SSL, so that's nice. Um, and I did not have to turn on universal plug and play on my router to enable remote access in Plex which would create a security issue. Instead, I used manual port forwarding on my router. On my router, I mapped a WAN external 
port number I chose in the external public IP address to a LAN internal port 32400. All right. Okay. And my NAS's IP address needed to be set to a static IP address for the NAS on the router, so IP addresses don't change. Plex has good instructions on their website for enabling remote access with manual port forwarding in the Plex media server. Seems like a reasonably secure setup, certainly better than leaving SMB1 active. Okay. Yeah. I No, I, this is, I mean, I have, I, I use the SMB with, with Sonos. I mean, it's internal to my network, so it's not like it's exposed to the outside world. But he's right. You know, the, there are security issues with it. But to play my music library, Plex is absolutely what I use. It it they they've really put a lot of focus into this in the past few years. Obviously, as um, as Steve points out, it works flawlessly with Sonos. Way better, in fact, than Sonos managing your library directly because Sonos devices are the things that have to go through and like enumerate your library, organize things, all of that stuff. You have to schedule it to be done. It takes time. Sonos devices, I mean, they, they have CPUs that are good for what they do, but not so good for that, especially if you've got tens and tens of thousands of songs, whereas Plex does all of that for you and just exposes your library as a service. And so I use it with my Sonos, but I've also been using it with iOS. Um, they have this app called Plex Amp. Actually, there's a Mac version of Plex Amp, too. And it's got, but the iOS version has excellent CarPlay support. I didn't want to misimply that the Mac version has CarPlay support. That would be interesting. It does not. Uh, but the iOS version does. And it's far more convenient to plug your iPhone into your car anyway. But man, the, um, it, it, like the interface is great. It gets you what you want. It, it just works. So I've been, I like it better than the music app. Um, so, and, and like he points out, you know, Plex Amp is part of, the third Plex uh, music is part of the things that you can do with a free Plex subscription, but I highly recommend you, you know, um, if you actually, if you're going to use Plex amp, then you need a Plex pass. Uh, but, uh, but I highly recommend that support those folks for doing what they do. So, yeah, I think you can do it for like five bucks a month. So, or, or, or buy, honestly, I would get working my advice with Plex pass, get Plex working, make sure it like is going to be a thing that works for you. So maybe pay five bucks for the first month, maybe. Uh, and then buy the lifetime subscription because the price of the lifetime subscription just keeps going up. And, uh, and you know, once you start using it, you're just not going to stop. It's, it's, that's not how it works. So, uh, they know what they're doing there. It's good stuff. All right. Um, I'm talking about Big Sur here, John, and Mike has a question for us about it. Uh, he says, I purchased an M1 Mac Mini a few months ago, started to convert over to it from an iMac I've used for years. I wanted a new install of everything, so I didn't use Migration Assistant. I already had all my files in iCloud, so I'm just reloading apps from scratch and trying to work around the very limited number of connections on the Mac on the M1 Mini. It wasn't long after I started using it that I noticed the computer was restarting unexpectedly. I would wake up in the morning and get that message. Same thing happened when I would come home from work and the computer had been sitting most of the day. Uh, I've copied, he sent them, he sent the reports to Apple, but he has no idea how to read them himself or what might be causing the problems. When Apple came out with Mac OS 11.2.2, that fixed some of the USB issues. Uh, and so I installed that immediately thinking that maybe my USB hub might be the problem. For a few days, I had no issues, but now the problems have returned. 
If you have any suggestions on what I can try to fix, I'm open. I can provide additional information as needed. Feel free to send us your crash reports. And I say that with a little tiny bit of trepidation because, um, you know, sometimes we, we get a flood of those. It's fine. Uh, really, the first page of them is usually the only thing that we need to look at. Like we, we just scroll through and see what it lists as the thing that crashed it. And sometimes that can give us or you an indication as to, okay, this was a graphics thing or this was a memory thing or this was a specific app thing, uh, but, but not always. So, uh, but you would send those to feedback at MacGeekab.com if, if you're so inclined. Did I hear you right, Dave? Did you say feedback at MacGeekab.com? I said feedback at MacGeekab.com. Yes, I did. So... <laughs> So, yes, you can you can send those to us if you like. He says, however, in the long run, I may end up giving my M1 Mini to my wife, who has a much simpler setup and configuration, which brings me to my next question. Since it is taking such a long time to build this new machine up from scratch, uh, I'm not looking forward to doing that again if I get another new Mac. I know I can use Migration Assistant, but if the crashing or unexpectedly restarting problem is related to software in any way, I don't want to bring that with me. I'm very seriously considering just building an external boot drive to plug in and boot my Mac from rather than using this internal SSD. I know that's possible to do, but what I don't know is if I can build that on my M1 mini and then when I get another new Mac, just plug it in there and boot from that on the new Mac. Years ago, you couldn't do that because each Mac OS install was specifically tuned to the Mac from which it was booting. I'm not sure if that's the case any longer. And lastly, if I go with an external boot SSD, probably something from OWC, what are your recommendations? I might want a one to two terabyte drive. I read an article on their site that suggested it be self-powered, but a lot of drives um, are not. Okay, so to answer all sorts of your questions, um, first of all, I what you are experiencing does not seem to be some widespread issue with M1 Max in general. Um, so I, I, I mean, obviously it might be specific to your M1 Mac and there might be a problem with that, or it could be software. It could be something completely different. Uh, but we haven't heard reports of M1 minis or any M1 machines just spontaneously rebooting, which is good. Uh, not so good for you, Mike, but you know, good in general. As for Big Sur, my understanding is that Big Sur is universal. Uh, so your boot all from one idea, I, I think that will work. Um, and that's been the case, accepting the M1 universality of things, but one install to boot them all has been the case for a number of years. There, you're right. There was a time where uh, Apple was, you know, to, uh, presumably to save space, I guess. Um, but, you know, when you installed on a machine, it installed only the resources that that machine needed and not everything else. That that's not been the case for a while. They've it's been that you know one install to boot them all was worked out great, and I I am ninety nine percent sure that uh, that Big Sur will boot both. It is a universal install. It's a big one. Uh, so yeah. Um, as far as SS, do you know anything about that, John? Before we get into SSD recommendations, or have anything else to, to no. any thoughts on this to share? Okay. Um. As for SSD recommendations, if you're going to use it as a boot drive, I would go Thunderbolt. You know, in most cases, you know, you can go USB or Thunderbolt based on what most of us are going to use our things for in terms of speed and all that. And of course, the beauty of USB 
there's two things that are great about it. Number one, it works on Macs that don't have Thunderbolt. So that's actually really nice, but your new one would, so you're fine there. And then secondly, uh, it, you have more, like we just talked about, you, you have more USB ports available more easily to you than you have Thunderbolt ports available. So drives, especially bus power drives tend to be the not pass through devices. So when you plug one in, it, it uses up that port and you're finished. So you have to plan carefully. Obviously now with big Sur, we have some options. We talked about those earlier. So, but I would go Thunderbolt if it's your boot drive. So that means from OWC, you're looking at the Envoy pro. That's probably the one I'd go with. And we'll put um, links to these in the show notes for sure. Of course, uh, glyph makes a really nice uh, drive called the Atom pro that is similarly capable um, in terms of, you know, it's Thunderbolt, it's 2,800 megabytes a second, that sort of thing. Uh, very well tested and respected. The Samsung X5 is their similarly capable Thunderbolt drive. So those are the three that we've tested here. And really any one of those is great. Um, they, you know, they, yeah, yeah, you're going to, you're going to do fine with any of them. Um, but obviously, you know, we, um, you know, we, we've tested them all. It's, it's, they, they work great. I have, I have an Envoy pro literally right in front of me. It is the device to which this episode is being recorded. So if you've heard it, well, it succeeded. I have one of the glyph Atom pros downstairs on, on that Mac and it works great. So, um, you know, and the Samsung we've tested, I'm not using one actively. So there you go. I don't know. Thoughts on that, John, on, on Thunderbolt SSDs or SSDs in general, externals? Um, I got a couple kicking around, but I, I built my own. Um, right. Yeah, I got a couple, uh, I think, Crucial. So I have, yeah, Crucial SSD, and then I got uh, a USB enclosure. Okay. From, oh. uh, uh, Amazon and I'm, I'm looking right now in system, uh, system info and yeah, it's a uh, speed up to 10 gigabits per second. So, so that's USB, Thunderbolt. right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yep. Yep. Cool. But you know, I'm cool with that. Yeah. You know, that's, that's fast enough. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and again, for, you know, an external sort of overflow drive, I'll call it, um, you know, USB is more than capable and gives you more flexibility. If you need to plug that overflow drive into another machine, unless every machine in your house has Thunderbolt, mm -hmm. you know, easily then, you know, there, there, there are benefits to using USB for sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, let's go to Ari here. Well, we might as well, while we're on the, uh, the, you know, migration thing. Uh, so Ari, I guess, was, I guess this came from Ben. So Ben and Ari are both, um, well, listeners to the, and part of the Mac Geek Cab family here, but also uh, consultants, I believe, in the San Francisco Bay Area. But anyway, uh, Ben wrote, a client of uh, has an old iMac still running Snow Leopard. She recently bought an M1 Air and is struggling with the migration. She bought a new LeSee drive for backup and backed up her iMac before attempting any data transfer. For some reason, the LeSee got formatted as case-sensitive and apparently macOS doesn't like to migrate between case-sensitive and non-case-sensitive volumes. Afterwards, migration assistant on the latter refused to even show the connected Time Machine backup drive as an option or aired because of the case sensitivity. A Mac-to-Mac -Mac transfer was no-go because Big Sur requires Snow Leopard Macs to be upgraded to El Capitan first. 
Her upgrade failed multiple times. I'm waiting to find out why. And I've suggested setting her system date back five years in case it's a, a certificates thing. Any other ideas about how to migrate? And Ari uh, chimed in first and, and said, what about carbon copy cloner to copy the data from the case sensitive drive to the one that is not then do the migration from the properly formatted drive. Um, and this is it. So I, this is fantastic advice. Ari at great, Great advice. Um, I am finding that carbon copy cloner, cloner uh, is really the best thing for big data copies as a rule, or at least way better than the finder. Uh, there, I'm sure there's other third-party apps that will do this uh, better, and, and you could probably do it, you know, from the terminal with like an rsync or something like that. But um, I had, you know, I mentioned that I'm using that Glyph Atom Pro down in the office. It replaced very recently, like two days ago. Uh, a four terabyte rotational SSD, uh, not SSD, rotational Seagate drive, uh, you know, one of their whatever it was drives that I've had for a long time. And I kept thinking, you know, I need to like this. It's a rotational drive and it's old. So, A, it's kind of slowing things down. Um, it's where I had my music library and some other things. And B, it's going to die like it's it's time. So I figured, OK, I'll replace it with this this glyph thing. And I started to do the copy in the finder, but it has old photos libraries on there that I wanted to preserve it. You know, it's also a four terabyte drive. So I was like, might as well just move everything over. And it took the finder, I think about two hours to go through and count all the files it was going to copy before it started copying. And then it was being weird as it started to copy. And I was like, this is stupid. So I stopped it and I fired up carbon copy cloner. And told it to do the same thing, go from this drive to that drive. And not only did carbon copy cloner begin copying immediately, like there's no reason that the finder has to count first, then copy. It could count and copy like this is a doable thing. And uh, and so carbon copy cloner did that. It also allowed me to pause without issue if I wanted to. And because I was I have um, my music library out there, I was messing with my music library. I mean, this it took. It, the the SSD is super fast, but the uh, you know the the old Seagate drive is is it's rotational. It's slow, especially with lots of little files. So this took the better part of a day to you know get everything over there, maybe even more than a day. And so I was doing things with my music library, and I wanted to copy a you know I wanted to get the most up to date version. Well, that only took like fifteen minutes because Carbon Copy Cloner can do its whole. Let me only copy the changed files over uh, because I've already done it once and it knew which ones had changed. And so I was able to just be like, all right, now is when I'm going to make the cutover, do the copy, eject the old drive, point all the libraries at this new one. And then I even copied my photos library over. So I only have one external drive on that machine because I had the photos library on an SSD. That's that's a mandatory thing. Do not put photos libraries on rotational drives. You Your life will be changed so much for the better. Uh, if you put them on an SSD, but John, I'm finding even my music library moved from rotational to SSD has been a huge change. It really. Yeah. So hmm. anyway, yeah. But carbon copy cloner, great advice, Ari. You, you saved many, many, many uh, uh, lives with, with that advice, or at least lots of headache and stress. So it's good stuff. <sighs> Thoughts on any yeah. of that, John? What Let's we, yeah. see. Well, no, our, pal alex in the uh chat room here mentions dd and rsync i guess are uh two uh 
There you go. Two Unix utilities that also will do uh, <coughs> copy things over. Yep. <sighs> Why do they even have? <laughs> I, I've never heard of anyone needing to have something case sensitive. And all I've heard is it causing grief for people. So I don't even know why Apple offers that option. I think you, um, I, I have two things sort of, of, you know, trying to fire their way to the surface in my brain. One of them is there was some Adobe thing that either I could, I could have this completely backwards. It either required case sensitivity or would completely break if you had case sensitivity enabled. But I, I feel like there was some app and it was a, a very like purpose specific app. Like if you were doing some massive Photoshop thing, case sensitivity mattered or I don't know, like if that was your like that was your day. So but I could be wrong. It could have been exactly the opposite. And then the other thing I seem to remember there was some in order to qualify for like government, some early security thing, case sensitivity was mandated that, hmm. uh, you know, it was, it was probably some ill-informed decision, but you know, that's how it was. And it certainly wasn't going to be changing anytime soon, you know? So it was like, Oh, you got to just do it. And so I think that's why they added it in. I could be making this stuff completely up out of thin air. Mm -hmm. So don't really. Yeah. C3 certification, Paul Fran says, so maybe there's something in there and Rob video guy suggests ah, chronosync sync okay. too. So, um, chrono sync would definitely be another one that would copy your files. But yeah, if you've got a crap ton of data to copy, don't use the finder. Mm -hmm. You use something that's at least robust and a, it'll be faster, but, mm -hmm. but B having something robust that can like re gracefully recover from a failed copy or, you know, like, like I said, do the, the, you know, the, the Delta, just the changed files you want something and, and you could do it with DD and R sync. In fact, I think, at least in years past, at least super duper or maybe carbon copy cloner used some combination of DD and or R sync to do their job. Like they, they weren't reinventing the wheel. They were just, you know, leveraging it the right way. So, all right. So we'll put links to all that in this, in the thing you want to take us to the next one here, John. Uh, yeah, my, maybe there's a geek challenge, but, um, Stephen writes in and says uh, he hopes our day is going well. And so far it, it has. Knocking on wood, <laughs> That <man>. could change. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to get your opinion on the effectiveness or whether you have ever used Stephen Gibson's data GRC oh, yeah. hard drive data recovery software. I'm trying to resurrect several failed drives for data capture. Uh, and it's called SpinWrite. And there's a link here. Um, I've never used it, Dave. Have you? Um, I have. It Spinrite is a Windows only app. Uh, mm. so you've got to find a way to do that on your Mac. And of course on an M1 Mac, that gets even a little more challenging at the moment. But it it is, I I as I understand it, I don't do a lot of data recovery, but as I understand it, it is the gold standard of of data recovery software. So like it it is the right way to go if you want to try and do this at home. Um, oh, and, and Paul Franz points out it's not windows based. It's DOS based. However, Ooh. yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so yeah, no, I have not tried spin, right, but I've heard good things about it. So, uh, now the one that I've used Dave, though, it's been a while. Um, but, uh, 
ProSoft has something called Data Rescue, which you may want to try. And that works with Big Sur. Uh, I checked it this morning. It does not mm -hmm. work on M1 Max yet. Like it just won't Ooh. run or, but you know, but they, they're aware of it and they, I mean, they just pushed an update a, a week or so ago to, you know, for other things. So they're actively developing. It's not like it's a languishing product or anything. It's just, they have not added M1 support as of yet, but what they're actively working, mm -hmm. on, which is good. Yeah. 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 It's good. So me and want to check that out. There's a, I think it's a, there's a free trial, which will, uh, tell you what it can recover, but not actually recover it until you right. give them the money. So yeah. that's usually how that goes. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I think that kind of brings us to the end here, Mr. Braun, as, as sad as that might be. I don't know. Should we do one more? Any pick one. This is the Should, end. My only friend. No, let's pick one more. The end. We're on a roll here. Really? We should quit while we're ahead. Mm -hmm. We're not that smart. So, uh, mm -mm. You got one more? You want to take us like to zero or anybody else? Pick one. Um, let me look at what did I have to babble about to zero here? Let's, we're doing zero. We're talking about it, so we're going to do it. So just bring us. It's um, fine. All right. Ciro says, I'm looking for a photo album manager outside of a subscription service like Lightroom ever since Apple shut down Aperture. I recently used the photo app to read the Aperture library, and it created a separate library for that Aperture library that negated all of the organization contained in the previous Aperture library. And it's just a mess. Any suggestions? Do I have to go back and create my own file structure under the photos file on my Mac like in the days of old? I thought Luminar might do that, but after discussion with them, they only store edit links to your photos whenever they're when it, wherever they are located. I also do not want Apple to control my photos by sending them to their data center, as is the current practice. Um, I used to be an Aperture user too, Dave. Um, yeah. And yeah. I didn't have that problem. I actually got a screenshot here. And so uh, the strategy that you want to use, I don't know why it didn't work for him, but it, I mean, it worked for me when I migrated. Uh, so you want to create albums within Aperture. And on, on my system, they migrated over just fine to, uh, to photos. Um, the only thing I could suggest is you may want to try Power Photos from Fat Cat Software. Mm. Um, I mean, that, uh, and, and they actually have a little article here called Migrating iPhoto and Aperture Libraries. So right. uh, you may want to read up on that and maybe, maybe check, you know, check out their software. Maybe it'll get it right. I don't know why Apple's didn't. I mean, again, in my case, it did, but that's, that's the best I got, Dave. Yeah, I don't know of like a photos manager that I would recommend it, in in the case like this. I mean, photos is uh, that that's the thing with Apple building these things. It it really sort of um slurps a lot of momentum out of the market for a third-party app to be like, "Here's your photos manager" because Apple is going to be it for so many people uh that unless you need 
very specific and usually very pro level stuff. There's just not enough in there. Of course, there's, you know, things like busy Cal and fantastic house sort of push against that particular um, rule, but uh, on the, in the photos world, yeah, not, not so much. So it, obviously a geek challenge if somebody has an idea, but otherwise, yeah, I like your idea of, of trying the import again with power photos that that's, that makes a lot of sense. That's really smart. Um, yeah. Just like, so, I mean, there's a theme here, right? Like the finder copying things over, no bueno, use something else, carbon copy clone or some, some third party software photos, same kind of thing. Maybe the import was no bueno, but use some third party software to give you a little more granular control and in it comes. So, yeah, I don't know. That's what I got. You got anything else? I'm glad we did that one. That was good. We good time to bring the band in. There they are. Yeah, yeah. Bring them in. It's not that cold outside, but you know, it's starting to warm up a little. We ate dinner on the water last night, which was uh, it was nice. It was a little breezy, but you know, it was something, something to do. Ah, yes. All right. Um, what do we got here? Yeah, that's what we got. Thanks to uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for all your questions. This was a action-packed show. It took me a minute there to sort of process through everything we just did in the last <laughs> hour and change. Yeah, no, it's um, this is great. Thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Uh, you can learn more that uh, you can learn more about. Easy for me to say. You can learn more about that at premium uh, or at macgeekup.com slash premium. You think I'd know this by now, but clearly I don't. We would love it if you would leave us a review. Go to macgeekup.com slash reviews. That's going to the closest that we're going to be able to get you to the spot where you can leave a review. Apple doesn't have a deep link to the review form, uh, probably so that people don't like try to automate it and, and cheat. We're certainly not into that, uh, but we would like a, a, a deep link nonetheless to make life easier for all of you. But, uh, but yeah, MacGeekUp.com slash reviews. Even if you've left a review, if it's been more than six months, you can go back and update it, and we would love that for sure. It really does help us to have those new reviews, even if the new is just an update. It, it, it counts. So thank you for doing that. John, you got anything to uh, say and or ask of our friends here? Thank you. Well, there you go. Uh, thanks to uh, all of our sponsors. Make sure you visit all our sponsors. MacGeekab.com slash sponsors is uh, a great place to go to see all the deals, even for sponsors that aren't active anymore. If the deal is active, we leave it there so you can take advantage of it. But, uh, of course, the sponsors we mentioned in the show today, uh, let's see, we've got startmail.com slash MGG, ladderlife.com slash MGG, babble, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash MGG with promo code MGG, headspace.com slash MGG, checkout.com slash MGG. Of course, our podcast marketplace sponsors, Smile, at smilesoftware.com slash podcast, Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com, Barebone Software at barebones.com. Hero.com slash MGG. Lido.com slash MGG. <sighs> All right, John. It, it, I think we, we need to say it again because it's it's super important. Um, this is good advice. And and if you could, you know, wave your magic wand while you say it, maybe, maybe this will help. But it is non-adepto de princess. Made up.